I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2005. It's with two men who helped make Ginzu Knives a household name across America. By the way, Ginsu knives are still manufactured and still available for purchase. I hope you enjoy this interview. Well, it is an icon in uh, the history of uh, American advertising and merchandising, the Ginsu knives. Remember those? Uh, we are going to be tapping into this great American success story for the next few minutes by speaking with Barry Besher and Edward Valenti, good friends and business partners for many decades, and they are responsible for that uh, extraordinary phenomenon and uh, have gathered some, some recollections together along with a lot of really good advice uh, for would-be entrepreneurs in a brand new book which is called The Wisdom of Ginzu. Carve yourself a piece of the American dream. It's published by Career Press, and uh, we look forward to the next few minutes to speaking with Barry Besher and Ed Valenti. Gentlemen, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Really good to have you with us. By the way, I should mention that uh, you, after those particular days were over, went on to a, a, a different exploit. I want you to just explain that uh, real, real quick to, uh, to our listeners about uh, this uh, other venture that you have, kind of a consulting firm. Well, we uh, sold our business in 1984, and the Ginsu name is now owned by famed uh, billionaire investor Warren Buffett. And uh, Barry and I did some consulting work for a number of uh, companies. Uh, we did work for Gulf and Western, uh, Paramount Studios, the National Enquirer, Mobile Oil. And then in 1990, we opened up a media buying firm that bought uh, media for uh, regional and national clients all across the country. And Barry retired about uh, three years ago, and I am still running that as we speak today. Very good. One of the things that is so great about this book is that uh, a lot of the uh, advice you give is, is that wonderful sort of advice that makes uh, an enormous amount of sense, um, but is also very basic sort of stuff. In fact, uh, I think at one point in the book, one of you were asked um, why you are so successful at what you do, and uh, the reply is, I do the basics. And that's part of what this book is about, I think, is getting us all back to the basics of what is good business sense. We have gone so far to the left in terms of the basics. You know, you're right in, in saying that a lot of the basic stuff is in there, um, uh, but 80% of the people just don't do it, and that's the problem. Uh, and if you uh, are recognizing that, then you're one of the lucky 20% uh, that do get it. Um, but unfortunately, most people don't. We have gotten so far off track that we've actually uh, disabled our ability to, uh, uh, to be successful. And what we say in the book is anyone can do what we, what we did. Anyone can be as successful as we were and are today. Uh, by just following the basic Ginsuisms that are in, in this package uh, that we put in this book. Uh, I would tell you that if you're of the older generation, uh, this is probably more revealing to you than anything else, uh, in that you might say, gee, I used to do some of those things, but I don't anymore. But if you're a younger person, say, uh, between the ages of 18 and, and 25, the stuff we talk about in the book is brand new stuff. Hmm. 
Let's get the story of, of how the two of you uh, first met and, and how this uh, really uh, exceptional friendship was born. Well, I was uh, working for uh, an NBC television station, and uh, I had been assigned to meet Barry, who was the owner of uh, some uh, businesses in, in my state. And uh, when I drove my 1973 orange Datsun 240Z with a white racing stripe up to his office and parked it next to a 1973 orange Datsun 240Z with a white racing stripe, and it was his, I got out of the car and I said, wow, this guy's got class. I felt the same way. <laughs> Very good. What happened at that time, we became fast friends, and uh, Ed said to me one day that people were selling record albums on TV and selling a lot of them, but there was no products on TV. And maybe we could find a product and put it on TV and uh, make a million dollars. So uh, I happened to find one, a product called uh, a paint pad device at a at a home show, and I went home and painted the ceilings with it. And I said, "Wow, this thing's fabulous! I paid ten dollars for it, and it didn't drip, it didn't splatter, etc." So we made up a commercial. First, we went down to Madison Avenue and tried to get people on Madison Avenue advertising <laughs> interested in it, and they kept saying to us, "Well, you can't do it. Can't be done. It's no good." So we were too stupid to realize that they thought they knew what they were doing. So we went and we made a commercial, and we put a man in a tuxedo. We said, this man is painting a ceiling in a tuxedo with the amazing new Miracle Painter. It doesn't drip. It doesn't splatter. Throw away your brushes. Throw away your rollers. I know that uh, that Barry's garage in you know this classic sort of story, which uh, uh, probably doesn't happen as often as people describe it, I think is literally true in your case, that his garage ended up being converted into your office and your warehouse and your distribution center? It, it sure was, and it was interesting because the product came from England. So when, when we imported it, I used to have customs guys at my house checking out all the, all the miracle paint, the boxes. But what's even more interesting is that in the first year, we sold a million of them at $10 a piece. We did $10 million. So we quit everything else we were doing. We decided with that, that we should go into this, that television mail order business. I mean, so much, so much for the so-called experts on Madison Avenue who said it couldn't be done, it couldn't be done. I, I want to ask you, by the way, Help us understand what their skepticism was all about. I mean, on what was the reason for their their fervent belief that this was just not going to work? Why not? People were they felt people were married to to, to paintbrushes and married to uh, rollers, and you'd never com- convince them to use anything else. And we sure showed that they were wrong. Mm. We had historical precedent, though. We knew that the Titanic was built by experts, and Noah's Ark was built by amateurs. <laughs> Very good. Uh, well, you, of course, go on from this to uh, uh, some some other exploits. But first, I want you to tell this wonderful story of these English manufacturers when they come for their first visit to the United States to see this operation which you had described to them in, uh, in uh, rather uh, grandiose terms. You had a bit of running around to do at that point. Well, Tell us about that. At that particular point, uh, it, it's one of our Ginsuisms that we have in the book. And that's people believe what they see and see what they believe. And at that particular time, we felt they wouldn't do business with us unless we were a substantial company, which we really weren't. So we went ahead and uh, hired a, an office suite at the top of one of the tallest buildings around. And when they came to town from England, we took them up to the office suite and sort of made them think that the whole floor was ours. And uh, what we found out a few years later is very interesting. When we went over to England to make sure that they really had a manufacturing facility, a few years later we found out that they rented a facility for a day, put a lot of their inventory to it, into it to convince us 
that they were indeed a large manufacturer of these paint pads. Wow. I remember you, why don't you tell the story of, of walking down the halls of this, of this building. Oh, yeah, of, I can tell you that story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on, the day that, on the day that they arrived, we took them on a tour. A tour, heck, I didn't even know where the men's room was. I would walk by a secretary and I would say, uh, by the way, Miss Jones, make sure that memo gets to our legal department. She didn't know who I was or what the heck I was talking about. The only relationship we had to a legal department was the eight and a half by 11 legal pads we had in our briefcases at the time. <laughs> but it must have worked because they signed on with us. Very good. Another favorite story of mine uh, in this chapter, I mean this, uh, this phase of your career involving the, the miracle painter, was when something really came out of left field, uh, a strike by U- UPS, and you were really dependent on them in terms of, of, of getting your product to the people that wanted to purchase it. And um, so when it became clear that you were going to have to uh, use something else, uh, then all of a sudden the, the weight of, of your product became really, really crucial. Explain this to our listeners. It's a great story. It certainly did. Uh, I was very involved. That's a chapter of Gitsuism we call Zig When Other People Zag. We really had to find a zig to get this product to uh, our customers. They were ordering them by 20000 a week, and we were relying on UPS. UPS went out on strike, so we really had no way to efficiently deliver a lot of the product. So we found out at the post office if we got the weight down to one to one pound, the product could be shipped very, very inexpensively under the bulk rate laws. So uh, I went out, actually, and I started finding ways to get this product under one pound, and it's, it seemed like it was always one or two ounces over, and we kept changing the packaging and changing shrink wrap and finished shrink wrap and all these things that we did. And then one day I, I, I put on a gold scale, and it weighed 15.99 ounces, and then all of a sudden I had a way to ship this thing out through the post office without losing money. Find another zig. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a very, very good thing. And then another... Uh, Ginzuism, which you talk about, I think, in the following chapter, is always ask. And I guess that's uh, that really uh, speaks very directly to just sort of the mindset which both of you had in terms of just kind of a persistent spirit, no matter what the what the challenge is. And, and, and when in doubt, always ask for information, ask for help. Yes. Uh, that, that can really be important. And ask for a better deal. And, and I think that's probably one of the more powerful uh, Ginsuisms that uh, are in the book and one that uh, you should be able to learn pretty quickly and incorporate it into, into your life immediately for, for results immediately. We believe that when you ask, there's no limit, and when you don't, there's no hope. The worst that anyone can say is no. But if you don't ask, it's an automatic no. You know, over the years, Barry and I have saved a small fortune uh, just by simply knowing how to ask and knowing when to ask. And in the book, we give real-life examples of how to ask and when to ask so that the reader can incorporate these things into their lives. I mean, when I shop um, at a store for a suit, I routinely get a free shirt or a tie. I routinely get bumped from uh, coach to first class. Everybody and everywhere and every candidate is, is, is available to be asked. Uh, it doesn't matter who it is. You just have to know how to. In fact, this morning at, um, uh, at the hotel that I'm staying at here in New York City, uh, I was able to ask for and receive a full uh, breakfast for me and my wife. Hmm. We're speaking today with Barry Besher and Edward Valenti, who are the co-authors of 
the wisdom of Ginsu. Carve yourself a piece of the American dream. And, of course, that's the next phase in this great, great story is when uh, the two of you uh, began marketing uh, a set of knives. And this is really where your great uh, success took off. I think one of the things that, that's that's really uh, interesting is, uh, first of all, just kind of getting the idea in the first place that selling knives on TV was was somehow going to work. How did that idea come to you? Well, uh, the idea of, of selling knives was really born out of uh, a need to find another product to save our company, which was in financial difficulty at the time. And in the book, we, we tell that story as to how that happened. The only thing available to us at the time was a set of knives. Now, conventional wisdom would have suggested that we shouldn't do that because, after all, who needed another set of knives? But because we were so desperate to get some cash flow into the company, we went ahead anyway. The challenge at that time was to elevate this particular product to a level that had not been seen before for knives. For an example, we wanted people to say there are knives, there are knives, and then there's Ginsu. So it was that desperate act that allowed us to be very, very creative, to give a set of knives, by the way, that made, was made at the time in Fremont, Ohio, to give it an oriental identity, an oriental name, a clever commercial, and uh, we ended up saving the company and creating a cultural icon, as we like to say in the book, problem uh, met and solved. Hmm. By the I, way, do you know what Ginsu means? It doesn't mean anything in any language. We, we made up the word. Right. Yeah, we, like, we like to say it means we don't have to work anymore. <laughs> in fact, you said, I think, that uh, as you were trying to come up with a name, I mean, I think you started out with things like Samurai and Harikari and other things, and then eventually just started kind of brainstorming with pseudo-Japanese yeah, made-up words and... And that finally came out of somebody's mouth, and that's what stuck. It sure did. It sure did, yeah. You, you approached this manufacturer in Ohio. We should say they made knives that you could just find in bins and in, in supermarket aisles. And, uh, and you decided that something could be done with this kind of product. Well, what, uh, what we did was, we, we, was we, we took all the knives they made, and we went through them very carefully and figured out what we wanted to include in our offer. And uh, then we came up with these clever lines like, but wait, there's more. We'll even give you six steak knives. Now how much would you pay? Don't answer because we'll give you this and we'll give you this and we'll give you this. Well, and you kind of talk us through the math of it in terms of you, you had an idea of, of how much you wanted this product to cost. And so then you had to kind of weigh how much it was going to cost you and, you know, in terms of guarding your, your, your profit margin and so on. I mean, in some ways it was pretty basic, pretty simple but absolutely brilliant. I mean, this is the way it's done. Well, the, the genius behind it was, was opening up the commercial with Ed karate chopping a board and then karate chopping a tomato because that grabbed people's attention. It, it, it really got them going and, and got them into the commercial because they'd say, what the heck was that? Ed, Ed, Ed went ahead and, and the, uh, the copy was, in Japan, the hand can be used as a knife, but that doesn't work on a tomato. And then we smash the tomato, we smash the boards. Hmm. You were you were calculating things like the cost of each of those steak knives to you was going to be something like, wasn't it nineteen cents? Yeah, or? it was nineteen cents a steak knife. Yeah. So uh, that that was going to be the bedrock. But I know that as you looked through these more than seventy different products that this manufacturer made, you you felt like you needed to find something that was going to be uh, a bit of an a, a attention grabber, and uh, 
that's when you uh, found out about some fancy little garnishing thing that n- neither of you had ever even heard of. Uh, and, and that was sort of part of what gave this a little bit of magic, right? Well, you could make radish roses with it. You sure could. And then you could make uh, potatoes. The famous spiral slicer. That's it. That's right. Round and round it That's goes. Right. You know, I, I, I should point out before we get too far away from this subject, and that is that um, even though the perception was and still is that Ginsu was made in Japan and the name is Japanese, we actually never mention that any time ever in the ad. The only thing we say is, in Japan, the hand can be used like a knife, but that method doesn't work on the tomato. That's why you need the Ginsu. So you left it to people's imagination. Left it to people's imagination, and they steered themselves into the direction that we wanted them to. But we never actually say it's Japanese, nor do we say it's a Japanese name. Mm. As people, I think, replay in their minds these famous uh, Ginsu commercials, um, I think one of the things that, I mean, it's, it's obvious that they had incredible staying power. I mean, I can practically quote the, the, these commercials that that first aired so many, many years ago and haven't aired recently, of course. Uh, but they were also very bare bones. I mean, this was before the era in which a lot of fancy things could be done with this kind of thing. What sorts of things did you keep in mind as you put these commercials together to make them effective? Well, uh, we had a philosophy that uh, we kept it simple, stupid, and uh, no word ever contained more than eight letters. How's that? We, we kept it simple by making sure that the copy didn't contain words that were more than eight letters long. Just, okay, keeping, keeping the, the vocabulary very simple. Right. Yes, keeping it simple, stupid. We tried to imagine that each and every person listening to this commercial did not want to be talked to but wanted to be entertained in a language that was very basic, very simple to understand, and something that didn't require a lot of thought. Hmm. As you talk about uh, marketing your second set of knives, which was Ginzu 2, you, you at one point had to kind of make an adjustment in what you were offering because it really wasn't taking off like, like the first set. And you ended up going with your gut instinct versus hiring a bunch of consultants to come in, probably great cost, to, to help you decide how this could be uh, adjusted. That's really an interesting moment in this book because it, 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 we, we realize that nowadays those kind of fine-tuning decisions and changing course and so on indeed seem to happen only very laboriously. And, and, and for you guys, it was just a matter of following your instincts. Well, that, that's, in a, that's in a chapter with a Ginsuism we call... When in doubt, blow it out. What happened here was we were actually, we had our second Ginsu knife set on the air, and we were losing $2 every time we sold one. So if we sold a million, we would have lost $2 million. That wouldn't have been very good. So uh, we decided to go in and, and look at the commercial and look at it again and again and again. And we decided that we had some garnishing tools in, in, in this offer also. And we were going to take them out, and we were going to put six steak knives in instead of the, the tools. And that was based on gut instinct. We just felt that that was the way to go. As soon as we made that change, it took off like a rocket. We sold a few million sets. We hmm. believe that gut instinct is nothing more than just your internal computer. And over the years, you download lots of information. And one day, without even knowing, you recall that the data that's been in your computer to make decisions for you. And most of the time, it's correct. In the book, we try to tell readers how to trust their gut instincts and what to look for and what to avoid. Hmm. 
Well, for all the great success that you enjoyed, you've made a few mistakes along the way, and you you talk about that as well. In in some respects, uh, maybe the most uh, most intriguing Ginsuism in this book is the one <laughs> which you say not making a mistake is a big mistake. And the reason for that is very simple. Uh, we believe that in order to be successful, you have to make mistakes. And if you don't make mistakes, it simply means that you're not learning, you're not growing, and you're not taking chances. Great entrepreneurs always make mistakes, but more importantly, they make them, they put them behind them, and they learn from them and move forward. The more times you make mistakes, the more likely you're going to be successful. One of the most interesting of your mistakes is also one of the most basic. It had to do with uh, the the products and, and, and the way that you priced them, and not so much the number that was in front of the decimal point, but the numbers that were after the decimal point. Tell our listeners about that. We'll, we'll never forgive ourselves for that. We basically priced our products at $9.95 and $19.95 and $29.95, and uh, Few years later, we realized if we would have made it $9.99 and $19.99 and $29.99, only four cents more, everyone would have still bought it. Wouldn't have any effect on them. But over the sale of uh, 10 million products, we would have made $400,000 more. So that was a mistake. <laughs> Another was uh, in being skeptical about a new venture by uh, uh, TBS's own uh, Ted Turner. He approached you with, with an interesting opportunity, which you eventually turned down. Well, uh, at, at the time, uh, we were approached by WTBS and Ted Turner and uh, to lend them some money to start some 24-hour news station on cable. Uh, cable was uh, in its infancy at the time. It was 1978. Very few people had it, and they had to have a 10-foot dish on top of their house or in their backyard in order to receive it. And uh, we said, who the heck is going to listen to news 24 hours a day? This idea is crazy. So we said, well, no, we're not interested in participating. And, of course, that's CNN now. Hmm. Big mistake. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, you also have a chapter in here. Uh, I mean, and, and some, some of your Ginsuisms are in interesting tension with one another. For instance, there's one where you talk about how your business does not have the Red Cross flag on top of it. You oh, need that's to be, great one. I love yeah, that. Yeah, you need to be careful about what you give away. And on the, on the other hand, you, you really suggest that, that, that being kind and helpful to others when it's done appropriately can really be very, very helpful. You tell an especially touching story about uh, uh, a, a broadcaster named Greg. Maybe that jumped out at me because that's my name. But uh, some very simple help that you gave him at a, at a rough moment in his life, and you're really glad that you did. Yeah, we did. Um, Greg was a good guy. He was a friend and a broadcast friend of mine as well. We had grown up in the broadcast business and one day he had been released uh, from his job as a general manager and uh, was, was really very visibly shaken by it. And um, he was about ready to go home and start the process of looking for a job. And uh, what we did for Greg was we invited him to our offices and we told him to dress up every day and come to our office like it was his job. And we made available to him a fax, a phone, and a secretary. And, uh, and so an he, office. And an office so he could go out and find a, a new job. And he did. And within three months, uh, he was back on his feet. Uh, our philosophy was that if he had gone home, he would have felt, fallen into a routine of, you know, painting this or fixing this that had been, uh, you know, lounging around and, and, and doing nothing. So 
uh, he became a very productive person, and his efforts in finding a job were accelerated because we put him in an office environment. Hmm. A lot of great stories in this uh, book from the men who gave the world the miracle painter and the Ginzu knives and armor coat uh, cookware, and a lot of great wisdom shared as well in this book called The Wisdom of Ginzu. Carve yourself a piece of the American dream. It's published by Career Press, and you can go to www.careerpress.com for more information. Edward Valenti, Barry Besher, a great pleasure to read this book and to speak with you today on The Morning Show. I thank you so much for your time and wish you the best. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate it.